So in this series, we, we are covering, trying to cover an overview of the entire Bible. And this morning, my main focus is the, the history of Israel and drawing out from that. And I know some of you, maybe many of you, because uh, a lot of people took these little booklets, the hundred essential verses, are going through this. Um, I, I had given one to some relatives, and one thing I heard back is that there's a lot of violence in the Bible. Maybe you noticed that. Maybe you've read the Old Testament and, and have seen, like, the, it is violent, and there is some stuff. And so when we think about the history of Israel, we got to talk about that. And here's, here's my thought. That a few weeks back, I, I, talked, I had that mirror, right? And I broke the mirror. And it shattered. And I said that, that that mirror represented what sin has done to humanity. That in a sense there is a brokenness in people. That the image of God we were meant to reflect has been broken. And so what I see in the, the history of Israel is God is working with broken people. And what's he doing? Well... One of you took that broken mirror pieces that we had, and you could see it on the screen better, but they took those pieces and made it into this. And so it is a cross representing Jesus, and of course a dove representing the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what we're talking about today, is God chose, instead of to cast off these broken people, he chose to work with them in their history over the long haul with the purpose of, of making something beautiful out of what was broken. That's what we're talking about today as we begin and dig into this history of Israel. And so God had given them, yeah, so my main point is as God works with these people, what we see is God our Father wants his people to learn to trust in him and to turn to him alone in difficult situations and whatever they're facing. And so in the long history of Israel, they're always getting in these situations and God is leading them to turn to him, to trust in him in what they're facing. So, again, two weeks ago, when I, my last sermon was when God gave the law, and you think, well, now they have the law, they have the commands they're supposed to obey, well, wouldn't that be enough? They just need to follow what these commands said. Well, as you'll see if you've been reading the Old Testament, they fall way short of those commands. And in fact, the very first thing they do is, is fail. Even while Moses is getting the law and coming down, he's come down the mountain with the stone tablets, the, the people of Israel already are breaking it. They, they are, they create an image, a golden calf, and they begin to worship this golden calf that they created and said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And Moses gets down and he, he, he flips, right? He, he breaks the stone commands, command, the stone tablets that God had given them, and he, he's like, this? How can I work with this people? And, and Moses and God talk about it, and, and God says, this is a stiff-necked people. 
What an image. A stiff-necked people comes from agriculture, specifically an ox, that you're trying to guide the ox so that you could plant your fields. But if a stiff-necked ox is not willing to go where the farmer wants to lead it. These are a stiff-necked people, meaning they refuse to be led. And so the Lord says to Moses, you know, I could just destroy them all and just start, start with your, your kids. Start with, you know, I can make a great nation out of your descendants. We don't have to worry about these people. You, you know, Moses, I could, I could deal with this. And Moses, don't do that, God. It, it, it wouldn't look good. You know, what would people say? You know, they would say God brought them out of Egypt just to destroy them. Don't give up on us. And that's the answer God wanted. God, God didn't really want to destroy the people. But Moses says, all right, let's, let's do this. And he says to, to God in Exodus 34. By the way, all these scriptures I'm going to be referencing, we're covering a lot of ground. I, I always encourage people to grab these sermon handouts on their way in. That way you could sort of follow along because I don't, we don't put every scripture on the page. But what Moses says is, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. In other words, saying, God, don't abandon us. Keep, keep your presence with us and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. God says, yes. In fact, he says, behold, I am making a covenant. And before all your people, I will do marvels such as not have been created in all the earth or in any nation. God is going to do in their midst marvels, amazing things, unlike he would do for any other people group in the world. They will see amazing things. The history of Israel. We will see God do amazing things over the, the centuries with this people. He will go with them from generation to generation. He will be with them when they're doing well, and he will be with them when they fail and fall and they turn to other gods. To give you a quick overview, there are seven stages in the history of Israel from its founding when they first had God on Mount Sinai up to the point of Jesus. And that's, so there's seven parts to, to just review them briefly, and then we're going to look at, at a little snippet from each time period. The first is the desert wandering, and that is covered in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Following that is the conquest of the promised land, or the land of Canaan. That is in Joshua. Then following Joshua, you have the period of the judges, which is the book of Judges as well as Ruth is, is in the time of the judges, and 1 Samuel begins with the period of the judges. Then they are unified under a king. So they, ha they, have a, they gain a king. That's talked about in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Then the kingdom is divided between north and south. The divided kingdom. That's in the books of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And then there is defeat and exile. So the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about the defeat and exile. And then the books Daniel and Esther cover the period of that. And then finally, there is return from exile. They come back 
to the land where they are waiting then for the Messiah. And that is the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So looking through this, we see in God and his history, he's going to work among the stubborn and broken people to teach them to turn to him and trust him. The image you can have is that of a shepherd who's trying to round up his sheep and guide them to his to the good pasture. So the first stage talked about is the, the wandering in the desert for 40 years under the leadership of Moses. They, they wander in the, the Arabian Peninsula, the desert, Sinai Desert, and God is with them in an incredible way. It says they, they see God as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And our Sunday school class, we're doing the, the video series, the mini-series, the Bible, and they just skipped this part. We were all frustrated because, like, it goes straight from the Mount Sinai to, to the, into the land. They, they decided to skip this because it's not the most exciting period to put on film. They wander around the desert, and they're hungry, right? Desert doesn't have a lot of food. And so how would God provide for them? I mean, they're, they're shepherds, so they, they would have dairy and occasionally meat, um, but they didn't have any source of, they weren't farming. They weren't able to farm because God was moving them. And so how would they have enough food? Where would their grain come from? Well, God himself would provide for them in an interesting way with this point, learning to trust him. And what God does is he sent manna. It's this mysterious substance that would appear in the desert in the early morning hours. And so each day, the, the people would have to go out with baskets and collect the manna. And then they would come back and they could turn that into bread and make it into to their daily food. And here's the thing about the manna. It wouldn't keep. They couldn't store it up. And, it, it, and God told them not to, but they, they, of course, did it anyways. They tried to keep it up and it turned all maggoty. Like, you know, so they had nothing to do with it the next day. So God made it so that every day they would have to go out and rely on him for their daily bread. Can I suggest God wants to teach us to every day turn to him, to come before him and, and seek him for what we need that day? He wants to teach us to turn to him for our daily bread. Each morning where we would seek him and, and yield our life to him and say, God, I want to trust you today for what I need. So that was the first stage of the Israel's history. From there, eventually it came the time to move into the promised land. Moses would not get to lead them in. Moses could only see it from the mountain distantly. It would be Joshua. New generation would lead the people into the land of Canaan. God had always wanted to bring them into this good land where they, they could go. But here's the issue. There were adversaries. In fact, the first time they thought about going in, they said, no, there's, there's giants in the land. They're, they're too numerous. They're, they're too strong. We can't defeat them. Now under Joshua, God's ready to lead them in. And this is the passage Matthew read, right? What do they need? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. I will, I will live with you. I will be with you as, as you go in. In order to have faith in God, to trust him in real life situations, 
it takes courage. There is no faith without courage. We have to face down our fears all the time. We have to, there's things that will terrify us. And if we don't trust in God through them, we're not going to make it. We need to have faith and trust in God. And we need that courage to, to know. And so, so they did. They had courage and they trusted God in the face of this opposition. And he led them into the land. So that was stage two. That stage ended when they reached kind of the end of Joshua's time. And each of the tribes then settled in their own portion of the land. So during the time of the conquest, there was constant warfare. Then they would move into, would be more intermittent warfare. They did not really complete the conquest of the land. The, the, the Bible itself says that. But they got to the point where they could each settle. And so each tribe was given their portion. And so remember, these were 12, the 12 tribes of Israel that had moved in. Each, they had their different towns. And in this period, God wanted to teach him to trust in, in his power. So they still had enemies. And when Israel did not stray, stay true to God, God would allow the enemies around them to oppress them and to defeat them. So let me read the synopsis of Judges 2 just describes how this period kept happening. It says, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, and a judge just meant someone who would lead them. He, they did function as a judge. They would give rulings about laws, but they also were kind of like a military governor or leader of the time, a general. So whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so you see this pattern through a lot of the Old Testament as the people would turn to other gods, would not follow the Lord, and God would allow them to be defeated by their enemies, to be oppressed and afflicted. They, then they would call upon the Lord and God would send a way of salvation. One of the judges would raise up. And that, that judge would then would lead them to, to victory. The interesting thing about this time of the judges is the judges did not come from one single tribe of Israel. Uh, I have on the screen, you know, each, the, each of the different judges came from a different one of the tribes. Um, I want to talk about one of those, and that is Gideon. Because I think God was teaching them in this time. And Gideon was one of the judges when the time of the Midianites were oppressing Israel and would just come and swoop in and take all their food that they had been growing and, and kill people. And, and so God raised up Gideon, and Gideon managed to gather a decent-sized army from the different tribes, an army of 32,000 men. Okay, that, that's, that's enough to do battle with. But God says, nope, that's too many. So he tells Gideon, tell anyone in the army if they want to go home, they can go home. They don't have to fight. You usually don't tell armies that, by the way. You know, that's generally not a thing you, you should do. And so after that, 22,000 go home. They're down to 10,000. Still, okay, okay, we could, we could still win battles with this. God says, nope, still too many. Have them drink out of this brook and watch how they drink. 
And so some of them get down on their knees and like lap up the water. And God says, none of them. Only 300 like scoop up their water with their hands, keeping an eye on things that are going on. And God says, that's the 300 I want. So now they have an army of 300 facing many thousands. God says, now you're going to know that I'm the one giving you victory. It's not your military might that matters to me. It is what your faith, that you trust in me and turn to me alone. And so Gideon and his 300 men win a great victory. And God does it by causing confusion and terror to arise in the hearts of their enemies. Oftentimes, that's how God wins the victory in, in all the history of Israel. And he's teaching them to trust in God's power, not their own strength. Oh, church, we need to remember that. We need to know it's not numbers. It's not our strength. It's not our, our how well we can put on a show on Sunday morning that's going to save us. It's not, I mean, all, all the things that, that churches, we can start to rely on how we do things, our, our programs. No, we need his power. To, to fill us as a church. We need his power to fill us as individuals. If we want to see God do great things in our midst, it is not because we're the, the greatest of all peoples. It's because we serve the greatest of all gods. The time of the judges came at an end when the people themselves demanded a king. So this happens under the time of Samuel. Samuel would end up being the last of the judges. And, and he would be led by God to anoint a king for Israel. Now, the people had good reasons to demand a king. One is that Samuel's sons were corrupt. And they were afraid that, that they would end up be the ones leading them. And, and everyone can see that. But also... They did have this problem that, like, because each of the judges came from the different tribes, they had trouble having a united army. And a king would have that standing army that would enable them to, to face their enemies, would be ready for battle. The king would lead them in battle. And that's what they're picturing. That's what the other nations had. They had a king that they could see who was ready to fight with them. And the other reason that they needed is a new enemy had come up, the Philistines. These had come into the coast. Likely, I can't think they came from the Greek Isles. And they had landed on the Mediterranean coast and had captured a big chunk of land. They had more advanced weaponry and they needed a stronger military, a stronger army to defeat the Philistines. And so the people says, give us a king. And it says, Samuel, this displeased Samuel. And he he comes to the Lord, he prays to them, and, and God says, listen, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. You see, Israel was to be like no other nation. They already had a king. The Lord was their king, but they wanted a king they could see with their eyes. They wanted a king who they could point to. And so God says, it's not you, it's me. So give them what you want. But before you do that, tell them what it's going to cost them. Like, would you want God to answer that prayer? Like, if you pray for something and say, 
God, I really want this. And God says, all right, I'll give that to you, but you're not going to like it. You know, I, I'd rather God say, okay, then no, God, don't, you don't have to give that to me after all. Um, but that's what he does. He gives them a king and he says, but here's what comes with the king, high taxes. He's going to take your money, military conscription. He's going to take your sons and harems. He's going to take your daughters. This is what's going to cost you. They ended up with three kings who ruled the entire kingdom of Israel. I, I have Michelangelo's David on the screen. David would be the, the peak. But the first king was Saul. Saul, um, you could read for yourself, like he had issues and he didn't do great. But he actually began the process of defeating the enemy. He had a lot of victories. And he strengthened Israel. Then David took over and David finished defeating the Philistines. And David sort of won all the wars so that David's son Solomon then could rule in a time of peace and prosperity. And under Solomon, Israel was on top. They were a regional power. Other nations came and gave them tribute for a change. And other nations came and gave them stuff so that they could build palaces. And, and they even built a big temple to God and a glorious temple. And they had victory. It was a time of prosperity. Do you think prosperity led them to trust God more? No, not so much. Um, I think God was teaching them that prosperity and success and wealth does not necessarily lead us to trust in God. In fact, David, who was the peak of, of, of what a king could be, he himself would fail and sin and do great damage. God was teaching that no human king is worth giving our life to. No human king. That they were going to need another kind of king. See, God was, in this time, God would begin to point them ahead to a king, a different kind of king that he would send. A king they could see. A descendant of David who would come in their midst and he would be a, a kind of king who would, no one could anticipate. And they would put a sign over his head that says, this is the king of the Jews. God begins to point ahead to that kind of king that would come, the, his only son. So the, the unified kingdom ends when there's a civil war. And then it becomes a divided kingdom. They split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And those two nations would actually fight each other at times. They would have different kings. It'd be civil war. It'd be division. They would also, at that point, begin to turn to other gods. Just like the other nations had kings, the other nations worshipped all these other gods. And so the people would want to begin to worship all oh, the gods of the, the Canaanites. They have Baal and they have Asherah. And so they would start to turn to these other gods. And so as the kings um, disobeyed God... God would raise up prophets. The divided kingdom was at the time of the, the, the rise of the prophets. And we, did, we spent all summer talking about Elijah. I don't want to repeat too much of that. You could look back at those older sermons. But Elijah came and he said, You are called to be faithful to one God and one God alone. The Lord alone is God. And so on Mount Carmel, Elijah issues the challenge. He says, he went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So 
So the call of the prophets to turn to one God alone. We live in a world that will offer us many other gods to worship. We, as, as those who've, who've put our trust in God, we, we're constantly having to, to choose which God will we worship, to stay loyal to, to God our Father in the midst of a world that wants to, to say, no, th- this is the answer you're looking for. No, this, this thing will save you. This thing will, will make your life work well. And remember, there is but one God for us. Who will we worship? Who will we put our trust in? The, the United Kingdom stage ended with defeat and exile. They were defeated by the Babylonians, and the temple was destroyed, and there was a lot of death, and they ultimately were sent away to a faraway land to live in, in Babylon. Jeremiah was a young prophet. Uh, when he was warning them of God's judgment was coming. And he kept saying, turn back to God before it's too late. Judgment is coming. But they would not listen. And then he saw it. He saw the, the defeat. He saw the destruction. The book of Lamentations was his response to what he saw. And the heartache, it, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet for all, all of that. And it's fascinating. This prophet who was always warning of, who no one wanted to have at their garden parties, right? Oh, there's Jeremiah. He's going to tell us that God, God is angry with us again. Like, can, can we, you know, that no one wanted to hear Jeremiah's message when he, he was a young guy. But afterwards, when the defeat had happened, it is Jeremiah who said this to a people already in exile. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. No longer a message of warning, but of hope. You see, God, even though he had allowed all this to take place, had not abandoned his people. God would be with them in these most difficult times. God would see them through and ultimately carry carry with them, um, protect them in the midst of this, this disaster. Have you ever had a time when you wondered if God has abandoned you? Have you ever faced a situation that just seemed hopeless? Oh, God's, God's given up on me. That's when Jeremiah 29, 11 applies to you. We love to, to pull out that verse, you know, oh, God... God has great plans for me. I'm going to do this and this. That verse was written to a people who felt crushed and hopeless. That's when you need to open up the Bible to Jeremiah 29 and read the whole chapter. Because it goes on to say, that moves from the exile when they lived in Babylon, but, but it is Jeremiah who then said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and then I will bring you back from captivity. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, and I will bring you back to the land. And so the history of Israel ends with them back in Jerusalem, rebuilding the city that had been destroyed, even rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed, and waiting for that king whom God said he would send.
waiting for the one, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, who would come and, and set things right again. So they're in this long stretch of waiting for God to, to save them. Waiting for the deliverer whom God promised he would send. That's the history of Israel. What God did with Israel, he will do with us. He will work to teach us to trust him and to turn to him alone. He will walk up with us through our life and guide and teach us. His goal is, is to make us into something good, to take what is broken and begin to fix our hearts and our lives. And our call is to, to put our faith in him, faith in the one he sent. I, I tell you, I, I don't like trusting in God. And sometimes I think I'm at odds with what God wants to do because God wants me to trust him. I want to arrange my life so I don't need to trust him. I want to have money in the bank. I want to have a good pension, you know, monies. I want to have everything arranged so that I don't really need to trust God. Like, it's all set. But, but God keeps doing this thing where he puts me in different situations, and it's different at the different stages of my life where I have to trust in him in some way. Maybe you've experienced that same thing. Just when you think you got things settled in one area of life, oh, there's another area of life where you have to trust him. And that's how God seems to work in me. I suspect he works in you in the same way. The Father in heaven wants to teach you to trust in him and to turn to him alone. Uh, I want to picture this bridge, this, this picture on the screen, the bridge. I think that pictures for me what it's like to, to follow Jesus, to, to put our faith in. It's like you, you see the first part of the bridge, but you got to, you got to step out onto it, put your faith in it before you see how it's going to look in the end. When I started to follow Christ, I didn't know exactly what my, I, I never suspected I'd be a pastor, you know, when I first decided to say yes to Jesus in my life. There's no thought of that. Um, and the truth is, we can be just as stiff-necked as the people of Israel. We, we could be hard to lead. But we have two advantages. One is, we have the Word of God. We have, we could see their story. And we could see the ways they failed to trust in God. That's why we're doing this whole 100 essential verses thing and this whole overview. We could read and meditate. And, and here's what we could do. We could put ourselves in their place. What would it have been like to, to be in that situation and think through the specifics of, how life would have looked out in the ancient world. And I think as we do that, God's Spirit will then point to th things in our life, our heart. Here's where you could trust me. Your situation is very much the same. That's what happens when we read the Bible in faith. We have the Word of God. The second thing we have is we have the Son of God. We've seen Jesus. We have the King we could see, and we could see how He brought salvation. And we can know that he walks with us. We can latch on to his salvation. We can believe the promises that even when we stumble and fall, he's holding on to us. He's going to carry us to the end. We have a good Savior. We could put our faith in him, and he has put his spirit in us. 
He is shaping us. He's taking the broken pieces of our lives and making something amazing. Praise God. And that's what we do here at East Glenville Church. If you're new to this church or visiting with us, our our motto is this. We want to learn to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. We are trying to learn how to trust him. And we know we need each other. We know we need to do this together. Um, But we, we believe God's at work in our midst. Two questions for you. How is God working in your life to teach you to turn to him and not some other thing? How is God teaching you to put your, put your faith in him and him alone? And secondly, what would it look like for you to trust him in whatever you are currently facing? You know, what would it look like for you to step out onto that bridge? In, in your life right now, what's the thing you're facing that requires that you trust God? That's God to give us insight and wisdom into our own heart and life this morning. Father, I do pray that your spirit would speak to each person here and point to them where they need to and and where they can trust in you. Give them the courage to step out in faith, to trust that you are their God and you are good, and to enable them to, to take that step of faith wherever it is in their life. Lord, we love you, and because of your son, we've learned to trust in you. And we commit our life into your care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.